And so it all comes down to Super Saturday. Can France achieve their first Grand Slam since 2010, or will England spoil the Paris party to allow Ireland to potentially take the title? Joining me, Nick and Brennan for episode seven of the Rugby Paper Podcast is Scotland and British and Irish Lions legend, Gavin Hastings. Afternoon, guys. Great to have you all with me. Nick and Brennan back as always. Gavin Hastings, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Looking forward to the last uh, of the Six Nations weekends and uh, it should be some super Saturday, I would have thought. First of all, let's talk about your nation, Scotland. Gavin, you were at Murrayfield for the England game back in week one, which probably feels like quite a long time ago. England, uh, Italy, sorry, was Scotland's first victory since. There's been talk about the victory in Rome being a sort of back-on-track instigator for Scotland. Do you see enough in, Ro- in that Rome performance to actually back up that claim? Well, you could argue that after two successive defeats, um, clearly a win is putting Scotland back on track. Um, but is that going to have much of a bearing for Saturday's match? And the answer to that is probably not. You know, and, and that's just the way it is. I mean, I haven't seen enough of Scotland to give me a lot of confidence going into to the weekend and um, nothing in the, in the meantime is going to change my opinion of that. I think Ireland are going to have to play probably the worst game in three or four years were Scotland to, to actually get a victory. And not only would Ireland have to play very, very poorly, Scotland would have to play incredibly well. And it seems very unlikely that Scotland are going to register a victory in Dublin against a team who are playing very, very good rugby. Say they do lose to Ireland, obviously that would mean that your coming of the hour moment was back in week one. Does that then represent a tournament that is a lateral step for Scottish rugby rather than the hoped for step forwards? If we do not win on the weekend, then then I think it's after the first, as you say, the first round of the matches and winning against England. Winning against England anytime is is great, but... um, you know, I was in Wales. It was a very disappointing performance. Regardless of what happens on Saturday, that's the most disappointing performance that Scotland have, have uh, produced. But it's the nature of the beast, I guess. And, and it's the nature of being a Scottish rugby supporter that, you know, one week is, is a high and the next week is a low. And we snuck a win, I think, against England. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, if we're going to prepare and, 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 and move on from there, then we're going to have to have more than, than a, a solitary victory, perhaps against Italy. You're actually backing Ireland to put 44 points past Scotland in your rugby paper predictions league. There is actually meaning to that scoreline as Brennan was telling me earlier. It's a similar scoreline to back in 2000. Am I right? I don't know if you based it off that or whether it was completely random. Uh, it was it was a bit random. I mean, I, I actually had a look at all the scores from the previous matches in, in this year's championship. And I just I felt that Ireland are capable of scoring lots and lots of tries. I think the weather is, is set fair for the weekend. And, and you know, I think Scotland will, will score three or four tries or three tries, as I probably thought that that would help them mount up to 22 points. But these are just predictions. They're, they're not they're, they're just a stab in the dark, as, as we all know. And, and if any of us were any good we'd probably be a lot wealthier than uh, than what we are now so um, I'm not going to be jumping up and down if if that is is a true reflection or I'm quite close to the scoreline as long as I beat the other two guys then which I would I would comfortably expect to do that otherwise my reputation's shot to pieces quite honestly well you can hear about what the other two have put in a little bit let's talk about the England game very quickly Nick I'm going to come to you about this. There's been this whole narrative with this England game where they went down to 14 men after 82 seconds, the earliest in Six Nations history. Injuries to Tom Curry and Kyle Sinclair left them significantly undercooked 
against Ireland, and they showed fight and spirit for the middle 60 minutes of the game. There's been talk of this game being the catalyst for, and I guess should they go on and win the World Cup, say in 2023, which is obviously fairly inconceivable at this point, maybe they would look back at this game as that turning point. Do you buy at all into this narrative? No. Um, (laughs) The losing triumphalism in this defeat was way over the top. They played a a game that they had to play after Ewells went off to a degree, but, but they created very, very little. And also, looking at some of the analysis of the game afterwards, their defence, and particularly just in basic things like numbering up, was really quite poor. Even though they, were, they, they obviously had a disadvantage, they compounded that disadvantage in some ways. The scrummage, I, I thought Genge did extraordinarily well, with the very significant assistance of Jack Nowell <laughs> behind him. I don't think that there are many flankers who will have put in a scrummaging performance like that. And I think that he sort of, uh, he was the tipping point against against Furlong. But the mess that was the scrummage in that game is a serious concern for the game as a whole. Because what you were seeing was a Catherine wheel spin virtually at every scrum with Genge driving up on the loose head and Sinclair going back on the tight head. It's clear that there was a directive to all the teams and referees before the start of this Six Nations that the scrum should essentially be square and straight. And that is where you award penalties, or obviously, better still, you get very good attacking ball off the base. That clearly didn't happen. And a professional sport with professional referees has got, if it issues directives, those directives have got to be adhered to. There was a bit of inconsistency, and I did notice that on Saturday as well. Don't get me wrong, I was cheering every time Ellis Gaines won us a penalty, but at the same time, I was like, okay, the England scrum, it didn't actually move forward there. It, the camera angle was quite often on Genji's side, which made it look more like a, an England advantage than it actually was. Now, regardless of whether they should have been scrum penalties or not, if there are that many scrum penalties in succession surely there should have been a yellow card for Ireland at some point even if you even if for you they shouldn't have been scrum penalties given that they were surely the consistency is that a yellow card should have been given as well yeah I mean I I think that there would be a real inconsistency in in a yellow card for wheeling scrums unless you could pinpoint one individual who was deliberately uh, infringing which I don't you know it would have been difficult to, to to prove Let's say one little thing on Wales versus France, and that is that Peter Jackson, in his article reviewing the fixture for the rugby paper, he says that the difference in the match was that Jonathan Davis spurred chance. Brendan, do you agree? Do you think that was the difference between Wales losing and Wales winning? It was certainly a moment where Wales could have got ahead numerically. I never felt France were going to lose that match. They were having a very tough night at the office, but the defence was firing. They weren't panicking. And I just felt all along they would do whatever it needed to win. But fair play to Wales. That was an you know, extremely fine performance from them. They should, they should take a lot from that. Before we move on to Super Saturday's fixtures, just a quick note on the predictions league. Nick, you've stormed into the lead, so we have a new leader. That's the first time you've been in the lead, and it has come at a good time with just one round of fixtures to go. You got one perfect team score as well as three correct results. Brendan, I have caught up with you, but not overtaken you after three correct results and one perfect team score. Of course, Brendan, you back to England to win, which has come back to bite a little bit. And you are stuck in joint second place, three points behind Nick and Gavin. Your predecessors, Shane Williams, uh, Michael Owen, Tommy Allen and Jeremy Guscott have 
put you in a bit of a sticky situation. You are in last place, some 20 points behind second place. How can I be in last oh, place when I've never done my predictions? That is just ridiculous. <laughs> what a conspiracy this is. I mean, I'm, I'm almost tempted to leave this podcast now, such as my frustration of that. From a man that said that they were just predictions and they weren't worth emotional investment. <laughs> yeah, but I don't like being last, okay? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, good thing Scotland can finish at lowest fifth then. Let's move on to France versus England. Just one stat on England for the tournament is other than the Italy game, which I'm going to exclude for these purposes, England have scored two tries. So two tries in three games. One of the reasons for that, arguably, is a lack of potency in the back three. Do you agree, Gavin? You know, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, I used to think this about Scotland a few seasons ago, that we, we literally, if you don't score tries, it's very, very difficult to accumulate enough points in order to win a game. You know, clearly it's been a problem for England. Um, you know, they were much heralded in many respects, and, and Freddie Stewart at, at fullback was heralded as this great attacking player. And to be quite honest, I haven't seen an awful lot of him during this Six Nations. And uh, whilst he's sort of caught the ball, all right, and, and, you know, it's kind of a fundamental for a fullback to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, you would expect and, and hope that they're going to have more of an influence on their attacking forays. So, yes, I, I think you could attach some of the blame to the back three, but once once Marcus Smith gets the ball and passes it out, the sort of magic appears to have been lost and, and it's gone. And, you know, to play Slade at 12 as opposed to 13 is, is just the most bonkers selection that I've seen in a long time because I think Slade is a terrific 13 and he, he can glide through gaps there or he can provide a missed pass and, and have the vision to open up areas in the field for outside back. So I think uh, England have been poor unless they some how are going to throw complete caution to the wind for Saturday in Paris. I just can't see any way how they can come close to France, quite honestly, notwithstanding all Eddie Jones's um, taunts of the French of being under pressure and all this sort of nonsense. Brendan, Nick, I was talking to you about Eddie's likely selection just before we started recording, because at the time of recording, we don't have the team selection yet. The headline of the 28 squad is that Max Malins, who started four games, has dropped out. Now, I've quietly been an advocate for this since game two, really. For me, the emblem of why he's an issue on the wing is when you saw him trying to cover when James Lowe was heading towards the left, far left corner. And you could tell that he wasn't electrically quick. And I think someone like an Adam Radwan or a Lewis Liner or an Ollie Hassel Collins would have at least challenged James Lowe in getting the ball down for that try. It's an odd time to drop Malins with just one game left in the championship. Brendan, do you think this is something that should have been done three games ago? And you were saying to me, you think it's likely that we might see Liner start. Nick, you weren't. So, you know, have at it for that debate. Well, Malin's first is a very fine fullback. That's what he is. He's a fullback. So I find it a bit odd to scapegoat him and drop him after four matches out of position. I will concede that the point you made there, yeah, he didn't get near and do he low, and he, he didn't ever look like he was going to make the tackle. He hadn't anticipated it. So he was caught out of position and didn't execute very well there. But that's not his position. Uh, but that's what Eddie Jones does. Uh, it would seem the choice between uh, Lewis Liner and Elliot Daly being switched back to the wing, uh, I'd go with Lewis Liner. If you're going to drop somebody and say, look, we've got to get a specialist wing in, why not go for a young gun like Lewis Liner? We know about Enid Daly. Give Lewis Liner a go. Let's see what he's really made of. Nick, do you think we will not see Lewis Liner in there? Look, I mean, judging on Eddie Jones's usual method, when he's 
got a problem on the wing. He goes to Daly. I, look, the, the whole uh, England backline thing is a vexation unless marcus smith produces a bit of magic england have got no you know no plan b or c this week there was some suggestion that eddie jones has you know in the final round of the six nations charged mark gleason the backs coach with creating a flexible and exciting new way of playing rugby now eddie jones has the responsibility for the way england you know the pattern that england want to play and he should be advising Gleeson. But the idea that he can suddenly click his fingers as a new backs coach and create something extraordinary just seems completely bankrupt to me. And, you know, the, the problem area for England has been in the centre in terms of uh, finding another ball carrier other than Tuilagi. And as long as that continues, I, I think England will, will struggle. The difficulty is, is that they did show against South Africa that when they brought Stewart into the, into the line, they had a handy attacking weapon. But he's, hard, he's hardly come into the line in this uh, Six Nations. Freddie Stewart is one option. I just want to remind of my opinion. Sam, Sam Simmons, get him at 12. I want to see it. Gavin, what are your thoughts on Sam Simmons at 12? Sam, who's suggesting Sam Simmons going to play at 12, apart from you, Ollie? Uh, um, no uh, one, which is why it's so revolutionary <laughs> as an idea. Well... You know what? Let's face it. He's he's capable of playing there. There's no doubt about it. And they'd probably just miss him out. But talk about a guy that could take the ball forward and into the tackle and probably cross the game line every single time. So however silly the idea is, Ollie, you just never know. And, and let's face it, Eddie Jones has had a few silly ideas in, in his time as and tenure as England rugby coach. So, um, you know, it wouldn't put it past him. My dwindling status and ego as a rugby journalist is going to try and interpret your use of silly as a connoted positively rather than <laughs> negatively. But yeah, we will see. Uh, maybe Freddie Stewart will make that Jamie Roberts transition. We don't know yet. Let's move on to the back row. Sam Underhill may come in at seven. One player who's come back in as well is Jack Willis following his ACL injury recovery, which he ruptured against Italy. Nick, who do you want to see come into the back row? And a follow-up question for you. You mentioned Jack Knoll, and he added a bit of ballast for Ellis Games to work with. Do you think that Courtney Law's playing as a second rower also contributed to England's stronger scrum? I do. I think that Courtney is such an effective player that he can actually make an impact in both of those roles. But at the moment, with Joe Launchbury pretty short on, on game time, I would be tempted to put Laws into the second row with Itoji against the French. And as far as the back row is concerned, if you've got Dombrandt at eight, you do at least have a line-out option. And uh, the guy who is, you know, an extraordinary talent, whether his time is now or not is another matter, but uh, England don't have a hell of a lot to lose, uh, would be to put Barbieri in there and uh, give them some carrying clout. Getting over the gain line has been a problem for England, and they need more than that. And they certainly need more than that uh, going to Paris. I'm sure by the time you're listening at home, these questions would have been answered, but it's an interesting discussion for us to have without knowing. Nick, you mentioned that England don't have a lot to lose. And I come to that phrase that you've used because I do wonder whether England can actually make a statement this Saturday. One, whether blowing away the French, given what has already happened in this tournament, would do it. And two, whether England have the tools to make such a statement. And if so, how? Do they rattle the French in from minutes one to ten and hope that they 
under the cosh in Paris, you sort of stop them in their tracks and don't let them get going. But other than that, there, there aren't really any weak points to target, are there? No, not many. And their, their difficulties of making an impact on the gain line of getting good presentation, uh, front football has been common throughout, throughout this tournament. And it is very difficult to see them getting the same sort of scrummage purchase against France that they did against uh, Ireland. And it is hard to see how, uh, you know, Gavin talked about throwing caution to the wind, to the winds and going, you know, going hell for leather. But even if they did that, the, the sense is, is that defensively, they're frail enough to get hit on the counter consistently. And France approved, apart from the game against Wales, that they are very, very good in that regard. And having Peno back, I mean, in terms of uh, finishing ability and creative ability, I don't think there's anybody better in the Six Nations. Just on that Wales versus um, France performance, obviously we have seen France blow away teams. Gavin, unfortunately, Scotland was one of them. Do we think it was important to see a France that was up against it and the eight ball wasn't going their way and still managed to squeeze out a result? Because that is something that the All Blacks were capable of doing when they were the best team in the world by some way. That's part of what a World Cup winner is, surely. Yeah, very much so. And then, you know, there's no doubt that the France of a few years ago would have lost that game in Cardiff last week. And, uh, you know, Sean Edwards clearly has done a sterling job and he's probably been the key man that France have had that has made the difference in the belief. And there's no doubt that the French defence has been absolutely fantastic. And uh, that has been the part of the game that that I believe that France have just needed um, to have absolute confidence in that in order for them to perhaps be a bit more expressive um, and, and chuck the ball around and score some incredible tries, which they've done. Because let's face it, they, they've played some terrific rugby over the last sort of year and a half. And so they realise that if they can play that way and things don't go right, as they didn't um, in Cardiff, they still can back that up with, with tremendous defence and we'll see them winning these games. I would love to see France winning the Grand Slam because... Who knows what they can then go on and achieve? And at the end of the day, England are going to have to change the way that they play and they're going to have to look at the individuals that they've selected and and the performances that they've put in during the Six Nations. And uh, getting beaten and and maybe well beaten on Saturday may be the best thing that, that happens to this England team. Agreed. Very much agreed. Just thinking about France's arc since the 2019 World Cup, I was thinking about this in great detail actually yesterday and their direction has been exactly what England should have been. And it raises the question, Brendan, do you think England could have been in a similar position with the French sort of model having been followed, i.e. a personnel reshuffle early on, a statement of attacking intent early on? They had the opportunity to get Sean Edwards. They didn't. Sean Edwards has obviously transformed the French defence. Or do you think England are limited by the personnel that they do have? I think the arc is the important thing here. I looked up this morning, you know, the, the old 2020 Autumn Nations Cup. Do you remember the final and France got to the final at Twickenham and sent a second strong third 15? It was 33 players unavailable. That team that lost in extra time, three points to England, seven of that team are on either starting or on the bench this Saturday. Uh, they, they took a massive opportunity in matches that didn't really matter to blood players they really didn't know about, weren't sure of, and a lot of them have come up trumps. And I can only take my hat off to France, Gautier, Edwards, for seizing that opportunity. Completely agree. I want to centre in on one player that we have talked a little bit about, but not too much, who is Jonathan Donty. 
who I think is the type of player who would answer all of England's problems at 12. I think he's been the best 12 in the tournament and he's certainly in the Ma Nonu Manu Tulangi mould. He's keeping out Varimi Bakatawa, which was unthinkable when you think back to the 2019 World Cup. Nick, are we seeing someone who has gone onto the radar and quickly made themselves an absolute mainstay in that French backline, that French team, that French system? I, I think that watchers of the top 14 will know about Dante from a long way back, being a, a, a pillar of the Stade Francais side for, you know, for eight years or so. He's extremely powerful physically, very, very good hands. You saw in the game against Wales how good he is over the ball. He's like having another back row forward competing for breakdown ball. And uh, he's shown some lovely touches, uh, you know, with his handling as well. You know, anybody who can keep a guy like Vakatawa out of uh, a team has got an awful lot going for them. And uh, he's had an outstanding tournament. Let's do one quick note on predictions for this match and then move on to Ireland versus Scotland. So as a four, we're kind of split down, down the middle here. Gavin and Brendan, you've both given a four point gap. And Nick, you and I have both given a gap of roughly two scores, 14, 15 points, all in France's favour. Gavin, from what you were saying, you said that there was no way in for England. So a four-point gap, that is quite close, all things considered. Do you think England could at least push France? Listen, they're capable of doing that. I think England, they're just going to have to somehow um, dramatically change the way that they've played so far in the Championship because if they think they're going to take France on up front and, and, and come off best, then that's not going to happen. I just think France will, will they'll be content just to see out and close out the game. So, you know, I don't think that they're going to take unnecessary risks. And, you know, if England score a penalty with 15 minutes to go and it brings it to 22-18, then, then who knows? You know, I'm being quite kind to England. Well, as an England fan, thank, thank, thank you very much. Let's hope for a tri-fest on Saturday regardless. Let's move Indeed. on. Ireland versus Scotland. Now, the headline news, we don't have the Ireland team as of yet. The headline news is that Finn Russell has been dropped. He went well against England. He's been below his best since then. Blair Kinghorn at 10, who is a utility back. Not a big fan of that expression, but he's not an out-and-out 10. Brendan, do you feel this was inevitable? Do you think it's a statement from Gregor Townsend? Or do you just think it's maybe... a a kick up the backside for Finn, who some people have criticised his attitude, being on his phone in warm-up, sort of grinning the entire time, maybe a little bit lackadaisical. Uh, I do think it was inevitable. There's been something not quite right with Finn Russell this season. Uh, he was good against England, but he wasn't outstanding, to be honest. And then he has, his form seems to have fallen off a cliff a bit. So that that's not an issue. Uh, a mystery for me is that he's much more consistent when he plays for Racing. He seems to become very erratic for Scotland. I don't know why that is. The argument then is who comes in? Well, I'm going to uh, spare Gavin's blushes here. I think Adam Hastings should come in. I've been watching Adam for years. I saw him first in the Millfield 7 that blitzed up the Rosling Park 7s. And I think he's a terrific player. He's done very well at Gloucester. I think you need a specialist at number 10. Of all the positions on a rugby pitch, you need a specialist at number 10. You can't just fill in at number 10, not, not with any great levels of expectation. So, again, I quite like Blair Kinghorn as a player, but I don't see him as a 10. I like Rory Hutchinson as a player. I think Rory Hutchinson for Northampton is terrific. He's really creative, but he hardly ever plays 10. We haven't seen him at 10, and you wouldn't think of picking him at 10 in a test match. So much as I want to get behind Gregor, because I like the guy, I rate him, this seems to me a pretty odd selection, and I'm 
intrigued and a little bit worried as to how it might go. Another, um, and we keep coming back to the midfield, but that's another area that is a little bit up in the air for Scotland. Sam Johnson has come back in for the second consecutive game, which is maybe Gregor Townsend's admission that the Sioni Tuapilotu experiment hasn't quite worked yet. My one thought watching Carl Stain at the weekend, who is a big lad, he's 102 to 105 kilos, something like that. He's not got express pace. He could be a centre. And Gavin, I want to know whether you think Carl Stain is worth a go at centre. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I'm a fan of Sam Johnson. I think, uh, you know, he played in the in the victory against England. He, he, for whatever reason, didn't play the next couple of games, and then he came in to the team for the Italian game last week, and and obviously he's holding on to his place for for Saturday. So, you know, I, I I've rated him, you know, right from the off, quite honestly, and I think he's he's a terrific. He's got terrific work rate, and and, and Chris Harris has got. Um, you know, tremendous um, aptitude. I think the lines of it running that, that Chris Harris does is, is very, very good. And of course, he is uh, pretty good defensively as well. So I think they're really going to have to produce something again, uh, almost a bit like England, that, that, that they've not gone to to produce a performance that, to give them any hope for for Saturday. I think uh, Duan van der Merwe, you know, it was a bit harsh missing um, and getting the ban for the, the last two of the Six Nations games. And, and he is a loss to the Scotland team because he's such a, a potent attacking force and he is a big, big man. So they'll miss him. I think Stuart Hogg... Um, you know, is due another big game. I think he's played in fits and starts this this year, um, has hockey. And uh, when he's been good, he's been very, very good. But he's he's had the odd lapse of concentration and, and just not stuck to his guns. So again, I think it's Scotland absolutely on point on Saturday. And if they're, if they're off in any way, then I expect Ireland to be absolutely ruthless because they will know that if they score quite a lot of points against Scotland, it's going to put an awful lot of pressure on France. It wouldn't happen very often that the Irish are all be cheering for the English, but it's certainly going to happen on uh, on Saturday. And just in terms of defence, um, and Nick, I'm going to come to you about this. Defensively, Scotland were averaging around three and a half tries conceded leading up to the 2019 World Cup. They got that down to about one try, and now they've conceded 11 tries in four games, which is a stark increase, granted having Hamish Watson and especially Johnny Gray unavailable for a couple of matches has not helped things. But is that an area of concern for Scotland going into next year? And what do you think has changed about their defensive outlook? You forgot to mention uh, Richie as well. You know, they've, Sorry, they've, yes. they've lost, they've lost um, a fair bit of uh, tackling impact there. Um, they scored f- four against Italy, conceded three tries against Italy. Um, so they're the only side so far this season that has, uh, has let it- Italy through the gate. I'm not totally clear about where their deficiencies are. So, you know, I mean, you look at, at the way that somebody like Sean Edwards has managed to get into French heads and transform their defensive profile and that there was a feeling that Steve Tandy had done exactly the same with Scotland. But, you know, the statistics tell a different story. And uh, you, you, you sort of get the sense that a lot of it will be as much psychological. Speaking of psychology, now this Scotland team, they tend to play better when there's a, an extra edge to a match. They brought it to England at Murrayfield. They brought it to England consistently since the World Cup. The stakes for Ireland are incredibly high in this game. Obviously, a win for them keeps them in the hunt. 
it wins them the triple cra- triple crown, um, which is no mean feat. Does this give that necessary edge, Gavin, to this game that Scotland have not had since the Calcutta Cup and could catalyse a Scottish performance that we haven't really seen since those patches in the Calcutta Cup game? Well, you know, it's been a good while since we've won in Dublin and uh, not as long as, as, as it was um, and has been since we won in Cardiff. But uh, look, you know, the guys have just got to go out there and, and, and try and produce the performance of the season, quite honestly, because Ireland are just one of these sides that they just seem to do so many things so often at the right time. And, and defensively, they seem to do the right thing and they seem to be plenty in control. And certainly in attack, they, they always seem to to be able to to create some space for whichever runner is, is coming through. And, and they're incredibly physical and direct at the rock and mall situation. So I think Ireland are a, a terrific side. And, uh, you know, my goodness, uh, you know, Scotland, we've really felt the brunt of, of Ireland, particularly over the last dozen years or so. I think we've only managed one victory in that time. So, you know, it's a huge, huge task to expect Scotland to, to go over to Dublin on Saturday when they are going for the Triple Crown, where they are going for the championship and wanting to put pressure on. And, uh, you know, based on what we've seen really over the the last three matches since the, the defeat of England at Murrayfield in the opening round, there's nothing that gives me any confidence that that, that is going to happen and Scotland are going to emerge victorious on Saturday, and I'm not dishing it out. I just think that Ireland are a very, very good side. Brendan, in your column for the rugby paper, you said that this side is finally looking like an Andy Farrell side, <laughs> making comparisons with uh, the Wigan era of Jason Robertson, Sean Edwards, Andy Farrell, Inga the winger, who very sadly passed away three weeks ago, four weeks ago now. Now, for those who haven't read the article, could you just clarify that line of thinking for us? Yeah. Andy Farrell, absolutely legendary rugby league figure uh, and become an outstanding rugby union coach. And unfortunately for England, he made the transition as a player just a bit too late. But I remember him playing as a league player. He was terrific. He could have played centre. He could have played six in union. He could do it all, as could many of those players in the Wigan team. They were very fit. They were very quick. They were very skillful. They were remorseless. They were disciplined. They were hard. And I think we're beginning to see that in, in Ireland. And this is possibly the surprise is that Andy Farrell has been a number two for a long time. And we haven't really seen the Andy Farrell team, if you like. At Saracens, he was employed as a defensive coach. Uh, I think he was a very big figure behind the scenes, but that, that was his task. Uh, with England, he was a defence coach. With Ireland, uh, he was a defence coach. Very loyal guy. But now... He's the main man. We're seeing exactly how he likes rugby union to be played. He's got the players to do it. He's got the system to provide him with the players to do it. And um, I hope I'm not tempting fate here. I think Ireland are going to get it right this time and hit the World Cup in 18 months' time, still on the way up. They've always hit it on the way down. But I can only see this side getting better. There's a real good group of youngsters there who are not going to be getting old together. Um, They're going to be getting even better together. I think I'm right in saying that Ireland have still never made it past the quarterfinals of a World Cup. Absolutely. They, they, yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. That it's they, insane. That a... I think many of us would put our mortgage on that changing by 2023. Come to you again, Brendan, about Jamie Gibson Park, who has sort of gone under the radar a little bit this championship, but he is quickly one of the most exciting nines in world rugby. Quick whippy pass, certainly not of the Connemary ilk, in that he's not the sort of box kicker, the 
game manager, so to speak. But how has his different style benefited Ireland's attack? Well, totally. I, th- I think it's very uh, instrumental. And, and first of all, first thing to say, very unlike New Zealand to let a good and get away like that. They must be kicking themselves because he is a terrific scrum half and he's the scrum half that Farrell wants to play in this team. The quickest rocking team, I think, in, in, the, in the tournament, certainly one of the quickest, the quickest service. He does not mess around, does he? His, his decision-making is instantaneous, what he's going to do. Must be an absolute joy playing fly half to Jamie Gibson Park. And as you say, he can't box kick the toffee, so he doesn't really bother. So he is the man for this Ireland team. As long as Ireland keep playing this way, he's going to keep Conor Murray out. And Conor Murray is a superb scrum half and a great servant of Ireland. But, you know, he's not going to get in this Ireland team ahead of Jamie Gibson Park at the moment. Um, speaking of the back row, that was a topic of discussion last week when Peter O'Mahony was picked, Jack Conan wasn't. Jack Conan responded by scoring what was a decisive try coming off the bench. Nick, I'm going to ask very plain and simple, what is your best Ireland back row? Give me a six, a seven and an eight as things stand. Well, look, you know, the seven's clear. It's van der Fleer. The eight, I, you know, I mean, I think Doris is a good, is a good number eight as well. And a very, very fine player, obviously. But I would stick him at, uh, at six and I'd have Conan at eight. So you expect them to go back on that and pick Conan at eight against Scotland? Obviously, no team at the time of recording, but yeah. Yeah, I would. Okay. All right. And one final question on the fullback debate in Ireland. And for obvious reasons, Gavin, I'm going to come to you on this. Hugo Keenan has made that 15 jersey his own. Michael Lowry has received many plaudits for his performance against Italy, scoring two tries. You saw his quick feet. You saw that he had electric pace. Some are saying that he offers more in attack than Keenan. Obviously, what an issue to have. What a selection dilemma to have. But would Keenan still have that 15 jersey for you as things stand? Yeah, I think as as things stand, uh, Ollie, I would have Keenan in. You know, he's played very, very well for, for Ireland. And, uh, you know, he, he he just offers something a bit different. He seems to be not the biggest guy, but he's got an ability in the air that, that um, is pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, he certainly uh, joins attack with uh, a lot of gusto. So, yeah, I think he's been uh, a sort of revelation. People perhaps were wondering whether Rob Carney was, was going to, his replacement was going to be easy to find. And now they seem to have unearthed two decent fullbacks. But my admiration for Irish rugby, when you think of, of, the last 20 years, Ireland have been at the forefront of, you know, European and, and six nations. And, and OK, we always talk about the, how they're disappointing in, in Rugby World Cups. But, you know, the rest of the time, there's been so much success that has been aligned to, to Irish provincial rugby. And, and you know, in, in one-off games against the All Blacks and, and in Six Nations Championships, and so you imagine just as a young kid growing up in Ireland and, and just used to seeing your teams winning. And they've just got this conveyor belt of proper athletes who may have grown up playing rugby at, at, at private school in, in Ireland or converse, they've grown up playing the Gaelic sports of hurling and, and football. And everybody is encouraged to play sport at a young age. And, and you know, it's no secret that Ireland are doing very, very well. You know, the... the there's no reason that Ireland can't be at the forefront of world rugby for, for many, many years. And, uh, you know, it, it could be to everyone else's um, cost, quite honestly, because until, you know, Ireland get turned over on a regular basis, then sometimes it's difficult to see them getting beaten apart from the odd game. Little rebuttal to that. Nick, you are 
the only one in the four of us to predict as little as a seven point margin for Saturday. Having seen Blair Kinghorn at 10, do you stand by this prediction? Yeah, I do. I think that Scotland uh, are, are obviously up and down, but I think that when they, uh, when they find a game, you know, they're, they're a dangerous attacking side and uh, they have that weapon always in their armory. I'm not sure that Ireland will, will go away on the scoreboard in quite the way that they, they have done in the past. I feel that Scotland need a game to finish this tournament on an upbeat note rather than one that uh, tails off. And I think that Townsend will, uh, and Tandy in particular, because their defence has been poor, I think that they'll be looking for significant improvement. Before we move on to Wales, Italy, Gavin Hastings, it is time for your random rugby 15. It's a break in the Six Nations discussion for 15 quick fire questions for our special guests, all more or less around rugby, one or two exceptions. Um, so Gavin, when you're ready, we will get going. Let's go. Nickname? Big Gav. Best rugby memory? Captain in the Lions. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Missing a plane home from Ireland. <laughs> nice. Pre-game tune? Eye of the Tiger. Post-game meal? Haggis. Best player you've played against? Campisi. Best player you've played with? John Rutherford. Favourite player right now? Marcus Smith. Rugby Idol. Pass. <laughs> None. Favourite stadium? Murrayfield. Favourite gym exercise? Not applicable. <laughs> <laughs> Occup <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Uh, I was an amateur rugby player and a chartered surveyor to boot. Superstitions? None. Rugby rule you would change? I could be in charge of the timing of a game and the game would last so much longer. Stop the clock as an American football as soon as there is a, the whistle is gone and don't start it again until the ball has been thrown into the line out or is in the scrum half's hands out to the scrum because the scrums are an absolute joke. Best thing about working in rugby? Um, the people... Okay, fantastic. That was incredibly quick fire. So okay. Wales selection has been much talked about. Wayne Pivak has defended it as not a sort of Hail Mary selection, so to speak. But great change. Johnny McNichol at fullback, Lewis Rees-Summit back in on the wing, Willis Halaholo um, in the midfield and Gareth Davis injury enforced in at nine. Outside of 10, Gavin, do you think these changes make sense? Are they essentially saying that Wayne Pivak hasn't yet decided what his best sort of formula is for the back line? And how, where do you see most opportunity? You know, you can afford to experiment when you're picking a side against Italy. And, and uh, you know, maybe he's just got his, his, um, his eyes on, on bigger things and, and for the summer and the autumn, I guess, and, and then looking ahead to, um, to the World Cup. So, you know, who who knows? I mean, for Alan Wynn to be going in there and what's he winning his 150th cap, is he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? But, you know, and then there's talk of him going on to the World Cup next year. I mean, I don't know what the heck that boy does. He obviously eats a lot differently to any of us and, uh, <laughs> you know, and whether he sort of disappears and gets supercharged, you know, every week or whenever to allow him to go back. But, you know, if they get re going and Adams, who I'm a big fan of as well, and, and uh, 
McNichol coming in from fullback, then then you know they're certainly capable of playing some great rugby, and uh, you know they can probably finish third. And and given my predictions, they will finish third. That's not a bad bad result, given the fact that they ran France pretty close, and, and okay, Ireland maybe beat them with a bit more comfort. But they they're a good side, Wales, and they know how to play rugby. Brendan, do you think this extent of changes, seven of them to be precise, rings of one slight disrespect to Italy and two, like I just said to Gavin, whether Wales aren't necessarily sure on several jerseys and shows that maybe players in those competition jerseys, the centres, the back three, haven't necessarily stood up and said, right, this shirt is mine until 2023. Yeah, I think it's mainly having a look at everybody uh, in a competitive situation. Um, you could say, you know, Italy, Six Nations at home, not the biggest challenge, but it's still a tournament test match. It's still got that cachet, that big crowd, I suspect, at Cardiff. Um, so, you, you know, you'll, you'll find out a few things about the players. So not ideal, but not a huge issue. Uh, Wales need to look at a few players. Uh, the crowd will love it. My God, you know, a match that didn't mean anything much is going to be transformed into a bit of a, a carnival when he runs on. Incredible reception, I'm absolutely sure. Great TV so there's not a huge amount to dislike about it. And and Dan Bigger, of course, you know, I mean, it's was a double just about to say, Dan yeah. Bigger bringing up his, you know, becoming a centurion. So uh, who on earth leads Wales out? They're, they're having a friendly discussion, I read about it. I, I would think, obviously, Alan Wynn will lead him out on that yeah, one. Yeah, first um, ever to get to 150. Or, yeah. or he could carry Bigger on his shoulder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or just in his arm, to be honest. He's probably capable yeah. of doing it on his uh, whatever, whatever, Capri Sun diet or whatever. Just a quick note on Italy. I personally was impressed by Italy against Scotland. Paul Rees for the rugby paper described the last 30 minutes as sort of green shoots of hope finally poking through. One emblem of this was Andre Capuozzo, who <laughs> is 22 years of age. He looks about half that. Came on, wriggled through, scored two tries, punched significantly above his weight. That's the second young winger to make his debut and score in the, uh, in the same match. Are these signs that Italy's under-20s, their younger generation coming through, they do have a bit about them. And in a couple of years, we can expect them to be exceeding the sort of the standard 36 Six Nations losses in a row has sort of set for them. Without a doubt. Uh, I've watched all their under-20 matches this season. Their under-20 front row could be parachuted into Test Rugby this summer. Or you could argue they ought to be. They are tough, they are fit, they are athletic. And although they might find it tough for a year or two, they would come through, I have no doubt. And their number eight and captain Ferrari is a terrific player. Garbizzi's brother uh, is a very decent scrum harp. He's not, I think he's got a couple of starts with Benetton. He might be a season or two away. So there are there are green shoots. And, and even with the, within the squad, we've seen, we can now see that Lamaro is a really, really good flanker. So no, they're not going to go and, and get a result in Wales. They might, And they're going to take a, a bit of a beating, but I, I can see some more than green shoots. I can see some really good players coming through. We're going to talk about one player who isn't in the Italy squad, hasn't been in the Italy squad for this tournament, nor has he since 2019, and that is Sergio Parisi. There was chatter that he may be able to bid farewell to the Italian jersey by playing for Italy, ideally in Rome. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Now we know that this will not be happening this weekend either. He deserves a farewell. Nick, could you say something on him? Is he the greatest Italian player of all time? He obviously made his debut in 2002. And how has Italian rugby changed in that time? And how has he been an instrument to that change? The thing that I felt was extraordinary about Parise was that in a team that was, you know, habitually struggling, 
he was always able to make his class tell. And that's, ex that's an extraordinary tribute because when you're always playing, almost as if you're in a, you know, on a field of treacle in terms of your opportunity of, of, of winning, for him to be able to sort of, uh, you know, sprint clear as often as he did is, is a massive tribute. As far as this uh, send-off element, I suppose that there is a, a little bit of a contradiction perhaps with Wales, although, you know, Bigger's obviously in the form of his life and, and Wynne Jones is a huge talisman for them in the same way that Parise has been for Italy. But just handing out uh, caps on an emotional basis. Perhaps this is is one where he could be, you know, he could be on 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 the bench. But I'm not I'm not convinced. And maybe if his if his goal is the World Cup, which I believe it is, uh, then maybe he'll get an opportunity. But he's defying Father Time very much more than Alan Wynne Jones is, for example. Or you say he's 38. Just check. Yeah, I thought he was older. 30, yeah. 38. Brad <laughs> Thorne kept going to 40. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is true. Well, maybe we will see him at the World Cup. I don't know. I mean, the, the whole talk has been about his Six Nations send-off, which obviously hasn't happened. It would seem a bit weird to not give him a send-off that he very much deserves. And also, would it be a 143rd appearance? Which... That's good knowledge. I think it probably would be. By the way, if he did come back, I'd play him in second row, not number eight. I, I think those days have gone. Okay, interesting, interesting. Where has he been playing it too long? Number eight? He's been playing number eight, yeah. yeah I, I don't think he's at test level. And also Italy have got good back rowers, develop them, you know, yeah, they yeah. need to be developed. No, fair enough. Just one curious prediction for the game. I, I doubt you are standing by this now, Brendan, as it's two months later. Um, it's essentially a post-mortem for this prediction, but Wales, 60 points. I, I've stuck with them all, so I'm sticking with it. Having heard Gavin... Absolutely going to bat for Wales. I feel much encouraged. I, I feel sure that Wales are going to absolutely blitz it now. Well, it'll be another sunny day in Cardiff. So that is certainly in there in your favour. Jones, it's been a pleasure as always. Enjoy Super Saturday. Thanks See so much, you. Gavin. <laughs> See you soon. For more content by The Rugby Paper, don't forget to pick up a copy on Sunday or subscribe online and have it delivered to your door. Enjoy the Saturday, take Sunday to recover and join us again on Monday as episode eight of The Rugby Paper podcast rounds off the 2022 Six Nations. Joining me to review the entire tournament are Nick and Brendan, as well as TV pundit and ex-England Bath and Saracens prop, David Flatman.